0: This podcast is brought to you by GoMoto, the service lane kiosk that grows your business. Want to increase revenue, improve the customer experience, and maximize service efficiency? Visit GoMoto.com to learn more. G-O-M-O-T-O.com. I'm Jason Stein, publisher of
1: Automotive News, and this is Daily Drive for Friday, February 19th. There's been more than enough deliberation surrounding the idea of what the dealership of tomorrow will really look like. Stretch out five years, and there's a real question around the emphasis that dealers should be placing on their own operations. Is it on the permanent shift to online retailing? Where does F&I and service fit into the mix? And what about the role of salespeople in a dealer organization going forward? Or step back in the picture even further, will there be the race to urbanization that was once on everyone's prediction list not long ago? Because that's what was going to happen. Pre-COVID. What about post-COVID? Will the number of dealerships continue to remain about the same? Or the number of owners fall? And what about all those ambitious EV forecasts? When looking out five years, every prediction is certainly viable. What comes true is always up for debate. Glenn Mercer spends a lot of time thinking about these topics. As an advisor to NADA, the former McKinsey & Company executive has a unique, thoughtful take on the retail future to come. He recently unveiled his 2021 update on his dealership of tomorrow at the virtual NADA convention. Today, he digs a little deeper with us. We've reached Glenn Mercer in Cleveland, Ohio. Glenn Mercer, it's nice to hear your voice. How are you?
2: Uh, Fine, thank you. Just digging out from underneath uh, the recent snowfall here in Cleveland, Ohio. Okay.
1: Well, uh, digging out and also digging in to your latest update on the dealership of tomorrow, which I mm-hmm. know was a big topic last week during um, during NADA, the the virtual version. Right. Um, we've seen you many times in person. You and I have shared stages together. Let's talk a little bit about what the latest iteration of the report looks at. What are some of the? Start us off by by giving some of the key findings.
2: Right. And, um, I do have to insert the disclaimer here that this report is, well, it was done for, uh, the National Auto Dealers Association, NADA. Uh, its opinions are entirely my own and do not necessarily reflect those of, uh, NADA or its members. Sure. Um, I think the, uh, the key findings of the latest iteration, I don't know if we're on version 4.2 or 7.9 or something, but the project really began in 2016. So I guess we're five years into it with regular updates. Um, I think the key findings are probably the same as they've been for the last five years, which is continued good health, evolution rather than revolution, challenges along the way uh, for the uh, franchise new car dealership industry in the United States. Uh, it's kind of um, uh, a contrarian perspective, I think, to have this relatively um, a stable outlook since as we all know from being on various stages, the audience is always more interested in announcements of staggering rates of change or apocalypses or whatever. Yes, uh, but <laughs> the, but our, our industry has been relatively stable for the last 125 years or so, and um, our outlook here is, again, challenges along the way and things changing, but the fundamental health of the system uh, seems to be intact still.
1: And in fact, um, you, you kind of said that the outlook for dealers was rosy, right?
2: Uh, yeah, I'm, you know, uh, uh, rosy is probably a word that'll come back and bite me at some point in time <laughs> in that, you know, there's, there's going to be some kind of other recession out there or there's probably another pandemic lurking around the corner somewhere, um, you know, whatever, etc. But uh, within our forecast horizon, which is not to look at any one particular year or the next quarter, but to look out over the next decade, um, as it were. Uh, yeah, we're uh, we're predicting uh, relative stability, maybe a little pressure on dealership profits along the way. Um, but, um, yeah, uh, I, if not rosy, at least uh, stable. So Glenn, uh, given that
1: stability and, and, and given the dealer profitability that we saw in mm-hmm. 2020, yeah. how, su- how sustainable is that, is that current high level of profitability? Is there staying power to the model that's developed during the pandemic or will it evaporate as vehicle production and inventory normalizes?
2: Uh, that's a really good question. It may be the, the question at this point in time, especially as the, um, the so-called four horsemen of the carpocalypse, you know, the uh, hmm. autonomous vehicles, mobility service, electric vehicles, connected cars, as some of the challenges from those have receded a bit um, over the last few years, uh, we do sort of move our focus to the underlying business model. And the underlying business model has been around for, you know, basically 125 years, which too, I think um, people who see, who are more pessimistic say, 125 years time for a change and those who are more optimistic say 125 years the system really is uh, excellent at adapting to to change and i fall in that uh in in that uh uh latter camp Mm -hmm. um so given that long-term perspective um uh, i think one thing and i will answer your question i think one thing that pundits um have problems with is they tend to extrapolate rather than search for equilibrium. Uh, Extrapolation, you know, made sense with MP3s destroying CDs, you know, uh, or uh, streaming video wiping out blockbuster. But um, the automotive ecosystem is so gigantically complex and with such a massive installed base of, you know, 275 million vehicles on the road in the United States that um, I think it's more sensible to look for how the system absorbs changes rebalances and continues onward so given that relative to uh to your question about can we stay at these sustained high levels sort of unnaturally high levels of profitability uh i think probably not if i look back over last say 40 or 50 years um uh, dealerships have been sort of steady in that kind of 2% Two percent uh, uh, pre-tax return on on uh, on revenue. Um, the good news is it hardly ever goes lower than that. Even during the Great Recession, you know the average new car dealership did not lose money. Uh, but on the other hand, it's hard to see why we're on a more elevated plateau uh, that would we'd stay on this on this higher level going forward. So I'm going to go with the weight of history. Uh, which is both reassuring, but maybe a little downbeat. And say, I would think that profitability would um, step back a little bit over the next um, ten years, uh, not to a level lower than we're used to. So still at a nice, a nice lucrative return, but not at these high levels.
1: Let's talk headwinds and tailwinds. At one point, uh, there was, uh, you know, rampant speculation in the industry that one of the huge Headwinds was going to be autonomous vehicles and ride-sharing. Those were the big disruptors. Right. Fact is, during the pandemic, there's less demand for ride-sharing, and the demand has actually shifted to dealers. It's a bit of a tailwind.
2: Right. Well, the the personally owned car is the ultimate socially distancing device, right? True. So, yes. Absolutely. Yep. You
1: also, you said suburban growth is a tailwind for
2: dealers. Right. Tell yeah, me a little bit about something, that. Yeah, this is something that uh, people see me give speeches about this. No, I start to kind of foam at the mouth about this. <laughs> um, I think there was, um, so I apologize in advance to your listeners, but sure. I think there was a, a sense over the past decade or so, at least in the, the, the main headlines in the media, that uh, the country was going to urbanize. We would all become hipsters, I guess, and move to lofts in the downtown central districts. Mm-hmm of America and that would be, of course, bad for um you know new vehicle sales, in that if you're living in central San Francisco, you really do not need a car in the same way as if you live in, say, Fargo or someplace. So um that that drumbeat was had continued on and on. But as I often point out, um the Census Bureau, when it counts Americans, divides them into two categories. Rural and urban and uh, as they say you can look it up uh, The American Census Bureau counts any place with really more than 2,500 people as urban And so which means hmm. uh, we have, you know 10% of the American population is rural and 90% is urban and people see this urban percentage growing and it has grown as rural areas have depopulated absolutely um, but what people miss is that we're not losing rural communities to central business districts. We're losing them to suburbs. And indeed, when you break urban apart, sorry to be so wonkish about this, but Mm -hmm. when you break urban apart into truly urban and then suburban, the suburbs are not only larger in terms of American population than the urban cores, but growing more quickly. And for me, the suburbs have always been the happy hunting ground Of the personally owned vehicle incredibly complex chains of errands uh you know school work commuting church shopping maybe less shopping if you're ordering online uh but to the extent the suburb is there and the suburb also tends to provide lots of free parking in your driveway um i see that as a real tailwind to vehicle sales that gets overlooked in the simplistic um discussion about you know we're all going to be urban because or not. And then, of course, the pandemic hit that as well and that the urban cores are not looking as attractive as they used to be. Well, exactly. But uh, certainly our report did not forecast the pandemic's impact.
1: <laughs> right, right. And I mean, certainly the, the migration out of some of the major metropolitan centers now that we've been reading about for the last year has only right. accelerated. You can think of New York City, you can think of Chicago, you know, um, other areas where it, it, it would be natural to assume that – you're going to get more folks going to car dealerships because they need them for those commutes that you just talked about.
2: Uh, Absolutely. And even if you believe that work from home will be a permanent feature of our landscape in in, in bigger percentage terms than it has been in the past, um, even there, that doesn't seem necessarily to dent new car demand as um, when we've looked at research studies on what work from home does is, yeah, it kind of cancels the commute because I'm not commuting to work, Uh, but that doesn't translate into, well, then I'll sell the car uh, because I'm still commuting maybe a couple of days a week, if not five. And when I'm at home, uh, maybe rather than going to the company cafeteria for lunch, I'm driving to the the nearby uh, uh, Burger King. So uh, even that doesn't seem to actually uh, cramp um, uh, new car sales. And then frankly, too, if we go to more work from home, we'll have more people moving farther away from cities in order to, uh, you know, afford maybe a, a bigger place at the same price, uh, more in the suburbs, as it were. Mm-hmm. And uh, now they're driving more again. So uh, we, I think the, these, these recent developments are, are at worst uh, neutral for new car sales. We'll hear more from Glenn Mercer
1: after this message.
0: Your service check-in process sets the tone for your customer's entire visit. Do your customers wait longer than five minutes to check in for service? Are your advisors presenting upsells to every customer, every time? How often is the opportunity for trade appraisals missed? When your service drive gets busy, these inefficiencies directly impact revenue. Give your customers the option to handle the entire check-in process themselves from appointment scheduling through final confirmation, all in under two minutes. Customers have the experience they want while selling themselves, which means your advisors are freed up to focus on profit producing activities. It's a win-win for both CSI and your revenue. Introducing a smarter service lane. GoMoto is the self-service kiosk designed to grow your business. If you're ready to start increasing revenue, improving the customer experience, and maximizing service efficiency today. Visit gomoto.com. That's dot com.
1: Electric vehicles are coming to your local dealership mm-hmm. whether shoppers want them or not. <laughs> and point. you have you, you said during during your uh, 2021 update of dealership of tomorrow mm-hmm. that you were really upping your electric vehicle sales penetration forecast for 2025 and beyond, mostly because of expanding supply, not necessarily surging demand.
2: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, To go back in time a bit, when we first released the report, I guess late 2016, we are going with 5% for 2025. Um, And at the time, and I'm counting both battery electric and plug-in hybrid electric together here, uh, um, about 5%, which would be sort of double or so where we were at the time. Uh, but then, uh, as you point out, primarily due to, um, sort of endless OEM announcements of accelerated and broadened EV product plans, um, that, uh, we've been gradually upping that and now standing at 7% for 2025. Part of this extra boost, I think, has been, um, Thanks to Dieselgate, mm-hmm. uh, That is, uh, you know, as many of our German colleagues have tried to keep heat in America through uh, diesel powered high end cars. And let's just say that particular competitive uh, weapon has been taken away from them um, and have pivoted pretty rapidly uh, to electric. So that, that's part of why we've inched it up uh, a little bit from five to seven. But as you point out, um, this is entirely supply driven. When we look at demand and not saying demand won't catch up, that's why we're predicting a for- an increase. Um, demand still has been, uh, sluggish to some extent to boil it down simplistically, maybe too simplistically. We've got sort of kind of about 10% of the American public really actually interested in a green vehicle that they might pay a premium for. And simplistically, we've seen them kind of rotating out of hybrids and into the EVs we that has to change for uh, sales to really improve uh, meaning conquest we've got to see people switching out of you know uh, pickup trucks into EVs not just uh, you know swapping um, the the Accord hybrid for um, uh, a Chevy bolt
1: government policies are going to play an enormous role and oh the absolutely. status yeah in the status of EV tax credits or regulations affecting fuel will also affect fuel prices. But, you know, as you correctly point out, and there's been a lot of fun lately in the Super Bowl with Norway, um, the United States is not Norway, especially when it comes to the price of a gallon of gas or a liter, if you will. Right.
2: Yes. Uh, Yeah, yeah, it's probably cheaper to drink, you know, champagne in Norway than (laughs) uh, than gasoline. Uh, Over $7 a gallon, it makes a a huge difference. It's it's sort of interesting, ironic a little bit looking back over time when EVs were first really being sort of visible on, on the spec uh, on the landscape. General Motors EV1, etc. Twenty
1: five you know? years ago now, yes. Twenty five,
2: absolutely amazing. Uh, that um, if you know if your average I don't know what your average car your average ICE car was getting back then in terms of MPG, but it's probably more like eighteen miles per gallon or twenty, uh, maybe if, if that. Uh, and, uh, fast, and maybe use, you know, the equivalent of $3 a gallon. Fast forward to today, uh, where if I'm already driving a, a Prius and pulling down 40 miles per gallon, uh, driving 12,000 miles, you know, um, 300 gallons, even at $3 a gallon, which we're not at, that's $900 a year. Cut that in half with an electric vehicle, I'm saving 450 bucks. That's it. <laughs> I mean, I think for the average new car right now, uh, maybe leaving aside some of the lower MPG, you know, heavy duty pickup trucks, probably the cost to insure the thing annually <laughs> is higher than the fuel price. So it's almost like electric vehicles have arrived at the at the battlefield, uh, you know, saying we're here with lower operating costs only to find that the, the war is over. <laughs> so um, since we, so we, sorry for that kind of convoluted metaphor, but we can no longer say you really should buy an EV because you're just going to save an enormous amount of gasoline. No, you're not. There may be other reasons to buy an EV, but that one has kind of been eroded away as the industry has. Uh, I think I think the I think I have the numbers right. The industry average uh, new car fleet MPG goes up by about one and a half percent per year. It's not a lot, but like you say, you go back 25 years, that really does compound.
1: And fracking made a difference too. We should not forget uh, the, the evolution yeah, yeah. of that. Yeah, Fr-
2: fracking is the, the ultimate irony in that uh, a lot of environmentalists oppose fracking, but it did such uh, amazing work on emissions by displacing coal natural gas and driving down American uh, uh, total emissions. Uh, truly an ironic turn of events there.
1: Glenn, a couple more topics. Um, when we look at dealerships uh, the 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 footprint of dealerships, the number of dealerships, mm-hmm. do you feel that the number is going to remain the same, but that the number of owners is going to fall?
2: Yeah, that's exactly our forecast the the number when people talk about consolidation in the industry, they always have to I think clarify did you mean rooftops, number of locations or did you mean owners? The number of rooftops has remained staggeringly stable, at least since the, the brooming of, uh, quite a few locations, unfortunately, during the Great Recession and the, the bankruptcies. Um, but since then, we've been rock solid and depending whose numbers you're looking at, uh, maybe have even inched upward a little bit and don't see any particular reason as to why that number would drop. Um, with growing population, growing suburbanization, et cetera, et cetera. But well, the number of owners is definitely uh, s- slowly but steadily um, heading um, downward. If we're sort of kind of, you know, at gross numbers, you know, it's sort of 17,000, 18,000 rooftops and something like 7,000 owners. Then the average owner's got, you know, two and a half stores. Maybe by 2030, the average owner has three or four or more. So we definitely have seen some consolidation in ownership, but it's slow. I mean, they're not called dealers for nothing. And so if you want to buy out a dealer, they're going to make sure they extract every dollar of value from your (laughs) offer and, uh, you know, um, uh, and so are exiting relatively slowly.
1: Let me ask you a final thing. You know, there's been so much attention on digital retailing because of the mm-hmm. pandemic. How involved do you foresee automakers being in prescribing digital retail standards for their dealership network? And I just want to, you know, the context here, obviously, is that they were very active in doing, in doing that as, as far as the physical bricks and mortar. dealerships went. But will they migrate that approach that they've had for physical facilities to the dealership's own online presence and perhaps the digital retailing platforms that they're using?
2: Yeah. uh, I I can't see why they wouldn't uh, try to go there Um, and we will probably eventually get there. We do have the challenge in that, um, I think maybe outside of a a hospital, if you call that a retail business, there is no more complex retail business in America than a new car dealership, right? New, used, mm-hmm. parts, service, collision repair, F&I. And so to rip out all the software in that handling those incredibly complex functions and replace them with an OEM specified system, even if the OEMs could specify one, is probably not going to happen. So uh, just the, the one-time transition cost would be astronomical. But are we going to see... Uh, increasing OEM control over those software systems. Uh, absolutely. I mean, uh, we've seen that, as you point out yourself, uh, we've seen that control. Um, I guess you could say maybe it started with Saturn where we stopped taking, we, we started taking the name of the family off the, the store, you know, Mm -hmm. Saturn of, um, you know, Bloomfield Hills or whatever. And ever since then, uh, aggressive standardization in, um, the physical side of the dealership. Why not uh, digital as well? And if we look outside automotive, which is something that we don't often do in automotive, it's such a complex business. We don't think to look outside our business. But if we look at every other, you know, franchise retail format out there, whether it's fast food or whatever, you see that same kind of standardization. So I would expect we will continue to head in that direction.
1: Glenn, it's always interesting. Thank you so much for being on Daily Drive and for sharing your thoughts with our audience. We will watch with great interest.
2: <laughs> uh, you're welcome, and uh, thanks for inviting me.
1: We reach Glenn Mercer in Cleveland, Ohio. And that's Daily Drive for Friday, February 19th. For breaking news, go to autonews.com. And for a library of nearly 250 interviews, go to autonews.com Daily Drive. We'll be back Monday.